We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There are moments in a rock star's life that define who he is. Where there was darkness. There is no you. And it's going to be a wild ride. Dexter Fletcher's Rocket Man is a musical fantasy about Elton John and is loaded with his songs, performed by Taron Egerton, who plays John. The sound involved recording Egerton singing live on set as well as in pre-recorded tracks. And the settings of the performances ranged from the actor as John sitting at a piano in a home to massive concert venues, all mixed in Dolby's immersive Atmos sound format. To tell us about the work on the film is re-recording mixer Mike Presswood-Smith. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Joining us today via phone from London, Mike Prestwood-Smith is a busy sound veteran who was Oscar-nominated for Paul Greengrass's Captain Phillips and won a BAFTA for Casino Royale. This year alone, his credits also include Disney's Dumbo and recent release Aladdin. His previous films include Mission Impossible Fallout, Deepwater Horizon, Quantum of Solace, United 93, and several Harry Potter films. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. So Mike, big picture, what was involved in bringing together the fantasy and the reality elements to the movie? Yeah, I think Rocketman is really quite unique in the way it plays as a fantasy and a musical. It's very different to anything I've worked on before. Also, it's often played through memory, and sometimes that memory isn't even reliable. So the lines of fantasy are blurred, even when we're sort of grounded for a moment in the rehab room, which is where many of these memories come from. Often the memories aren't accurate. They're often the fantasy of our main character as well. So the lines are really blurred. So finding that blurred edge between what's real and what isn't is a, you know, sound has an amazing way of sneaking in through the back door of your consciousness and, and telling you something that's very different to what you're watching. And so to use sound in that way with a fantasy movie is really both challenging and really interesting because you can really twist an audience into thinking something that they're not seeing and going with the moment. And so it was a lovely opportunity to play with that and to have that license that a fantasy gives you to sort of not be literal, but at the same time present these really amazing, dynamic, beautiful, 
tracks that Elton had created over the years. So the combination of those two things, from a musical perspective, it was wonderful, but also from a sound perspective, you know, having that licence was really a great opportunity to sort of have fun as well. So for us, it was a, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of experimentation, and very different to anything I've worked on before. And let's give a shout-out to the members of your sound team. Who else participated? Yeah, so Matt Collins was my co-mixer. He took care of effects and foley and backgrounds. Danny Sheehan took care of all the dialogue and ADR. And Cecile Turnsack did the music editing on the stage. And Andy Patterson did all the recording and took care of all the onset recording and playback. Uh, Giles Martin did all the arranging, amazing arranging of Elton's songs. Uh, he was awesome. There's others. There were plenty of others too, but... They are the principal guys and, you know, it's down to them as much as anyone that this sounds and feels the way it does. And the supervising sound editors that you worked with? Yeah, actually, Danny Sheehan and Matt Collinge were both re-recording mixer and dialogue editor and supervising sound editors together. So they took care of a lot of that. And Giles Martin, our musical arranger, was on early. And I think getting the process down early on was the key part to us in how best to attack the songs in the film and whether to record live, whether to do pre-records, you know, how best to go about it. So there was an early discussion about that with Dexter and we decided to pre-record everything, but with the option of recording Taron's vocals live on the set as we did them, which is the process that we did. So getting the technical workout on that was something that happened early on. But yeah, that's how we ended up talking. And to be clear for our listeners, Taryn sang all of the songs himself. Absolutely, yeah. It was something that was very clear, I think, early on once Taryn was on board. He's got a fantastic voice. And I think that Elton was very vocal himself about having Taryn sing the songs. I think Elton didn't want someone that was just going to try and replicate him. I think he wanted a character that could both act in terms of dramatically, but also vocally and musically, and someone that could really embody him in their own way. And I think Taron makes a magnificent job of that. I think that was key to Elton to get that to work. So we were very lucky to have someone that could cover all of that. And what did you discuss with Elton? Well, I actually didn't discuss anything with him until the very end of the mix. Um, he was actually amazing. And I think once he'd set the pieces in motion, he, I think, wanted the filmmakers to go ahead and make their film without too much interference. I think it was key to him to be as impartial to it as he could be. I think had he been involved on a sort of micromanagement level, maybe it would be a different movie. So I think that he was keen to have the filmmakers just bring their own thing to it. So I only really spoke with Elton at, towards the very end of the mix once we'd done a first playback just to get his thoughts on the music and the mix and the vocal balance and how the film was playing. Um, it was actually quite late on, but it was a great moment because he loved what we'd got going, so it was a good moment. That must have been a little nerve-wracking to play it was. for Elton. You know, it was. We, did, we actually, just, just to put it in context, we did a playback probably, I'm going to say, five days before we had to print master this for a theatrical release. Literally, that was all that was left to do, so... We had Paramount in with us in the room and we did a simultaneous playback for Elton and David Furnish, his husband, in uh, Milan, who were watching there. And I think everyone was on tenderhooks just hoping <laughs> that Elton was going to love it. He'd seen an early cut. He knew Taron. Taron and he spent a lot of time together, so he knew he could sing. But I don't think he really knew what the movie was until that playback. So there was a lot of anxiety about that. And when he came on and FaceTimed us after we screened it, 
He was very emotional and very effusive about the movie and Taron's performance and all the work that everyone had done. And I think I could feel the palpable air of relief in the room. I think it was just, you could hear the sigh for miles around, you know, it was quite a moment. Did you attend any of the production? No, I didn't attend any of the onset stuff. Andy Patterson, our, one of our music editors, was there doing all the playback for Taron and assembling all the takes, the live takes. It was a pretty big task to put together. Often, Taron would ask to have, rather than the tracks played to him, he'd want someone just to accompany him on a piano so he could freestyle more with someone in the room. So Andy would sometimes play piano into his ear so that Taron could make his own tempo up for the songs. It's kind of unique, really, in that way. And then Giles Martin, our music arranger, would then arrange around that performance. So it was very loose, but it meant that Taron could really... Um, kind of be the master of his own destiny on set and really sort of go for it. And often if the on-set recordings weren't good enough, he would then come in and post-sync his singing afterwards if there was an area where he'd freestyle. So it gave us a lot of flexibility in terms of arranging the tracks to his performance. And I, and I think it really shows when you watch the movie that he's very free when he sings. It feels like there's no boundaries to it. It's just, it is actually happening. I think it really helps sell the reality of what you're seeing as you watch it. Now, where do you and Matthew mix the film? So we mixed at Goldcrest in London in their main stage there. They have a big stage downstairs and it's been around for a couple of years. It's, it's a great room, very accurate room to mix in. Well, let's talk about mixing some of the songs and also, importantly, the environment that you were in. Why don't we start with your song? Okay, yeah. Your song is a great example of how we treated the vocal and the music and, and how it sort of helped the fantasy move along. Early on, he comes to the piano and starts playing and finding your song. As uh, Bernie's just written the lyrics at the kitchen table, literally, and he finds it very quickly with the with the chords. It's a, it's a lovely moment where you really see how Elton just comes up with this stuff, it kind of oozing out of him almost. And it's played very literally. So we're upstairs with Bernie. You can hear the piano downstairs, and we cut to and from Taron singing and playing piano. Until we realise we're into something special and his family start tuning in and suddenly everyone's in the moment. And then at that point we shift from the literalness of the events we're watching to a sort of more fantasy way of playing it where the score comes in and we start building the track into this big moment where he sort of transcends the song in some way. So the narrative is very cleverly put together very quickly, you know, from creating one single song to him becoming a performing artist is done through this song. So it's a, it's a great narrative device to quickly say, hey, this is a special song. I've just come up with it. I've recorded it and now it's a hit. It almost happens sort of in one go. So the fantasy of that is all cut in through that song. And uh, it's a good example of going from literal to fantasy, really. I think it was a great early on example of that. Now, I know Saturday night, the production number was quite challenging to mix. Would you tell us about your approach to that number? Yes. So there's a big number early on, actually earlier than your song, um, there's a big number early on in the film where a young Elton, there's actually three people play Elton, two small kids, and then we cut to town. But there's a whole scene where we evolve from young Elton to older Elton. And we use the song Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting to do that. It was complex because it's a big rock and roll kind of number. And it had to play as a sort of big musical piece. But in order for us to really buy into the performances of our two principal singers, Young, Eldon and Taron, we had to really ground that music in a sense of reality. So as well as mixing all the music and getting the vocals to feel really integrated, 
finding a layer of reality to sort of ground the fantasy was complex because it was a very dense, high-volume piece, which meant there wasn't a lot of room to really find the events to sell that reality. But we, it goes from a pub fight to a street to a fun fair to a street brawl. Our principal characters are singing all the way through it. So there's a lot of sound to sort of sell and to make work in those environments. So finding that balance was really, it took a lot of go-rounds to get where it was. And also finding the consensus with the filmmakers at that point, the level at which we wanted to support the fantasy with reality, was a, it was a real learning point to find how much reality we needed in order to ground the performance, but how much space we also needed to get the song to read as a big number. So it was a to and fro, really finding our levels with all the action that was going on around the principal vocal to try and find our moments to ground it. So it took a lot of go-rounds to get there, but I think we really found a good place where we just used very particular, succinct events to sell the moment, but then let the music just soar. A number that required a lot of different environments was your title track, Rocket Man. Would you tell us about that number? Yeah, Rocket Man is a slightly different to many of the others because it actually starts off with him basically taking an overdose. So the perspective on the song, we didn't really need to ground it in literally in the way that we had some of the other tracks. That song was very subjective from his point of view. Uh, all the way through, he walks through a party where he feels alienated and detached from everyone that's there. He then announces he's going to kill himself and throws himself into a swimming pool where the first part of the song happens. And so he's singing underwater, so it can't be literal in any sort of way. It's a fancy. So that was much more grounded in the music and the way we balance the music against his vocals. I think it got complex once he got out on stage. He basically leaves the swimming pool, he's taken out through an ambulance, and then he ends up backstage, and then he walks out onto the stage with 100,000 people. And it's a, the real kind of the apex emotionally, I think, for me it is anyway, of the, of the movie where... He goes from this desperate moment of loneliness to this moment when he has 100,000 people singing along with him. There's a beautiful sort of juxtaposition of a man who's both lonely and adored at the same time. So the music really did just drive that at that point. But getting the crowd, getting 100,000 people to sing along with you is, a, is no mean feat. And um, Matt Collinge, our effects mixer, and Danny Sheehan, our crowd editor, really pulled out a lot of things to get that to work the way it does. It's a very emotional, I think, spine-tingling moment. But again, not entirely literal, but a lot of layers in order to sort of feel this subjectivity that he has at the party and then this sort of moment of glory when he's on stage. It's a big sound moment, a heavy lifting moment. Now, did the sound editing team go out and actually record crowds in a stadium, or what, what elements did you have to work with? 
They did a lot of crowd work on it. Yeah, they had a lot of people singing along. They didn't go to a stadium to get it. They just did multiple, multiple passes with lots of people and layered lots and lots of sound up. Also, Charles Martin, our music arranger, recorded a lot of choir singing along as well. So we had had a lot of voices making this stuff up. So there's huge sort of choral elements as well as actual raw crowd elements to sort of have this huge group of people singing along with him. But at that point, musically, we're very wide. There's a huge orchestra. There's him playing his piano. There's the accompaniment on stage, you know, people with guitars and tambourines and things. And getting that all to feel dynamic and glorious, but at the same time grounded, I think, was constant sort of balancing point going on between those things, which we were always trying to find. But hopefully we found it with that one. Now, as I understand it, for the I'm Still Standing number, you considered bringing Elton John's actual vocals into that number, and then you abandoned that idea. Would you talk about that process? Yeah. The last song that Taron performs is I'm Still Standing. It's the sort of culmination of all the events of the film. It's a glorious moment of sort of defiance, if you like. And it's set to the video that was shot in the 80s in Cannes of him on a beach, and they managed to get Taron into that video. It looks amazing. They sort of matted him in, so... It feels like he really is there in the same video that Elton did. And we tried a couple of versions where Elton took over the vocal halfway through. We thought it might be fun to have that. But actually, in context, once we watched the film through a few times as a long play, I think it was important to have Taron have the final word just because he'd had so much of it through the film. It was almost like we needed him to close the movie. It was his movie as much as anything. And I think having Elton do it just shifted the context it just didn't work in the same way and so we all decided that Taron would take it but it was a moment of you know a and b moment it was a quite interesting now there's going to be some obvious comparisons to bohemian rhapsody was dexter already finished with that movie when you were mixing and if so were there any lessons he learned on the set of that first film that he brought to this one yeah, no, he finished a while ago and he really took that over towards the end of the production and then obviously all the way through to post. But the format of that film is fundamentally different in that Rami Malek is lip syncing to Freddie Mercury's performance. So it's a fundamentally different movie. And also it's not really a fantasy in this way. So it's a slightly more straight sort of biopic. So I'm sure Dexter learned a lot on that movie. I think it was more about production and it's more about design and costumes and all the things that come off the screen but in terms of the the way the sound worked we were so fundamentally different conceptually that we dictated our own terms in that sense i think it was a, an amazing sounding movie bohemian rhapsody and i think that the scale and the impact of the music is something that dexter was very keen to replicate in the sense and we went about trying to do that i don't think we tried to replicate the movie but just the scale of it and the feeling of it, but fundamentally very different because we had our own performance from our lead actor that was um, really led everything, I think, not just emotionally, but narratively and, you know, conceptually, he just led everything through this story, you know, this fantasy. So it's a very different movie in that sense, but I'm sure Dexter learned a lot on going through Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm, I'm sure. Now, with Rocketman being a musical, you also had to weave in and out between these musical production numbers and then dialogue scenes. Would you talk about the mixing process for segging between these worlds so that they're not jarring? It's consistently this sort of difficult thing to do, the transitions between these events. I mean, we had the luck that we're not sort of a needle drop kind of musical where you suddenly go into this big number. Often there's a sort of dialogue-led narrative that goes into it. So that really helps make the edges a little bit more blurred. But also 
we quite often use Taron's live vocals for transitions to really help go from production sound to the musical sound. And if we didn't have those, then really the craft is to try and make the vocal feel as integrated into the reality of the scenes as possible. So a lot of the time, if we didn't have live vocals, and I think we probably used pre-recorded vocals maybe 80% of the movie. So a lot of the time we had to spend crafting those recordings into feeling like production. So there's a lot of craft and techniques involved in trying to give the vocal a sense of perspective and shape and movement uh, using all sorts of things like reverb and EQ and stuff to, to try and make it feel like those performances are adhering to our performance on the screen. So if you get the vocal performance right, then really everything else is there to support that. And, um, you know, sometimes the simplest of things can help ground a viewer into believing what they're seeing, you know, getting the Foley feeling right, getting the backgrounds right. Those sorts of things can really help sort of ground the performance into a reality and really help sell the audience that what they're seeing is real and never really question it. I think you really want to make an audience relax when they're watching a musical because it's it's this sort of conceit that you have to get over straight away. But as long as you get over it, then the musical format is wonderful. It's spectacular and it's otherworldly in many ways. Now, Rocket Man also had an Atmos mix what did that bring to the project or how did you use the Atmos? Yeah, you know, I think Atmos, and certainly from my experience, some of the best use of that is when things are quiet. They're not big, noisy um, productions. So I really enjoyed getting the music into the Atmos space, especially when it was quiet. You know, when there were chances like for, when we're underwater with Rocket Man doing the title track, a lot of the music is moving around in objects in terms of finding little bits of the orchestration to move around, some guitars, some of the um, sounds that Charles put together. There's a lot of movement going on throughout those tracks. So I'd often take the tracks that recorded at Abbey Road and split them out so I could create objects and find space throughout the songs. So each song was very different, but fundamentally the music is very wide, very dynamic and very open. This year alone, in addition to Rocket Man, you also worked on Aladdin and Dumbo. So what has the schedule been like for you? Yeah, I don't quite know how that all happened at once, but there you go, it did. Yes, it's been relentless. I mean, relentless in a good way, but it's literally been, uh, you know, finish on a Friday, start on a Monday on the next show. And so, yeah, it's been tough, but amazing to, once you get in a groove with these things, you know, mixing is just about finding a groove and sort of... Uh, getting into a bit of a zone. So I think it was quite good in many ways just to stay in that zone and keep going. <laughs> Hopefully it was a good zone. But there were very different movies and very different personalities, but all incredibly rewarding, you know. Would you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the business? Yeah, I started in music and I did a lot of music recording and production. And then I got into sound design for uh, films and TV and I still work in music. I composed a soundtrack for a movie a couple of years ago. So I'm flip-flopping between it all the time. I think it's part of what made this so rewarding is working with that kind of music. And, you know, it was amazing. So, yeah, I've, I've sort of done all sorts of things, a lot of TV uh, dramas. And I think I got my first big break in film in 2000 with Billy Elliot. And the phone sort of carried on ringing after that point for film mixing. So, yeah, it's been a long road, but a really rewarding one. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to talk with you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.